One of the greatest obstacles to crafting health and wellness is identifying and controlling inflammation. It's at the core of all complex and chronic diseases, and it's the driving mechanism that underlies the most common symptoms that people like you struggle to overcome. Join us as we explore cutting-edge science and research to give you the information and tools you need to create the quality of life you want and deserve. And now, here is the host of Inflammation Nation, Dr. Stephen Nosworthy. Hey there, and welcome back to the Inflammation Nation. Uh, last episode, we talked about insulin. We're in this little mini-series about uh, hormones and health, and we're breaking them down one by one, just talking about the bigger picture of, of how how they function in the body and, and kind of things to look out for and to be aware of. And um, I started a couple of episodes ago talking about kind of like ranking an order very loosely, uh, the most important hormones to think about. We started with thyroid, uh, in, and to be honest, that's a, a huge topic. And um, we teach three-day seminars to doctors on Hashimoto's hypothyroidism and, and so on. So that's a really big discussion. And so I kind of just covered, skimmed the surface with that. And then last episode, we talked about insulin. And uh, after I uploaded the uh, the podcast episode, I, I realized that there's really more to the discussion than what we covered in that first part. And so this is part two of insulin. Um, if you're watching this on YouTube, you can see I'm, I'm in my truck. Uh, we're on the road and I'm recording this on the iPhone. So if you're listening, you know, on the podcast page or Spotify or Apple podcast, uh, I really hope the audio comes through for you. Um, but nevertheless, let's talk about insulin because one of the points that I made is that insulin is your storage hormone and it gets nutrients into your cells. And we're most particularly interested in how insulin has an impact on the liver, on muscles, on fat tissue, as well as the brain. And we're gonna put the brain off to the side. Uh, again, that's a whole discussion in and of itself. But for the most part, when insulin is out of control, and we have to understand that the laboratory ranges for fasting insulin are, are far too broad for optimal health conditions. Ideally, we want insulin to be at least single digits, ideally even more so down around the levels of four, perhaps five, somewhere around there for, for us to be confident that insulin is really well controlled. But when insulin gets out of control, there are characteristic impacts on the liver in terms of increasing glycogen storage and perhaps causing uh, things like fatty liver, which is associated with high blood sugar uh, states. Then there are impacts on uh, muscle, where insulin promotes protein synthesis to some degree. Other nutrients do that as well. So it's not, uh, or other hormones do that, combined with protein sufficiency. So it's not just about insulin and having insulin spikes or surges. Um, but also as it relates to muscle physiology, insulin uh, is part of how we get glucose into cells to fuel kind of like short duration, high power output activities like sprinting or lifting heavy weights for just a couple of repetitions. Um, and then there's the impact of insulin, high insulin on fat cells, which basically is to increase the number and or the size of fat cells, which increases the number of fat that the cells can store. Um, and that's called lipogenesis, making fat. And insulin suppresses lipo lysis or lipolytic pathways, lipolysis, another way to say it, um, which is the ability to break down body fat. And so high insulin increases the rate at which you lay down body fat and it suppresses your ability to burn fat as a fuel source, which means that high insulin states tend to promote things like um, fatty liver, 
insulin resistance in the muscles and it increases body fat. And high insulin prevents you from losing weight and uh, getting a better body composition, if you will. Um, the other part of the conversation then is to look at the, at the spectrum of hyperglycemia, the spectrum of high blood sugar states. As a general rule, people with normal blood sugar or with um, reactive hypoglycemia, or what we might call functional hypoglycemia, you know, they don't have issues related to high insulin. Although there's kind of a, a gray zone where somebody can actually have elements of high blood sugar and low blood sugar with variable amounts of insulin. Um, and these are kind of like special cases. Uh, and on the podcast, I would really prefer to speak in terms of generalities that apply to the broadest section of different populations. But nevertheless, when we enter into a state of high blood sugar and high insulin, it starts to bring us down a path or a progression where we go from, say, simple states of early insulin resistance, and we'll talk about that coming up in a second. And then we, as that continues to get worse and blood sugar and insulin levels, or I should say insulin, higher insulin levels are required to maintain the same blood sugar status, then begins a progression where we go from early insulin resistance to more significant insulin resistance. And outside of that, we get into early metabolic syndrome, which then can advance. And metabolic syndrome is a constellation of things that includes things like insulin resistance, uh, hyperglycemia, hyperinsulinemia, but also things like uh, increased body fat, waist to hip ratio increases, um, lipid panel goes wonky, LDL goes up, HDL goes down, triglycerides go up. We can see elevations of uric acid. We can see hypertension to different degrees. And so there's different criteria to call something metabolic syndrome. But understand that metabolic syndrome, which is your pre-diabetic state, is the result of a progression from that simple early insulin resistance into more advanced stages into early metabolic syndrome. And of course, if you go beyond metabolic syndrome, you, you become truly uh, diabetic. And we're talking about type 2 diabetes, uh, which is diet and lifestyle related. And we're not talking, uh, at least in this section of our little podcast mini-series, we're not talking about type 1 diabetes, which is autoimmune related, or type 1.5 diabetes, which is where you start out as a type 2, but you have an underlying predisposition to autoimmunity, and you end up being reclassified as a type 1 autoimmune diabetic. So just kind of keeping the discussion to the non-diabetic, the non-type 1 diabetic spectrum of a progression from early insulin resistance to advanced stages to metabolic syndrome to prediabetes. And all of this is driven by continuing elevations of insulin or continuing degrees of insulin resistance. So what is insulin resistance? Well, we talked in, the, in one of the earlier episodes about how hormones work on this concept of a lock and key, where you know I might have the right key to a certain lock, but if that lock is rusty or if it's stuck, I can stick the key in, but I, I can't turn it to either lock or unlock it. In this case, the, the better analogy would be to unlock it because the, the metabolic action of insulin, when it binds to the insulin receptor, which lives on the outside of the cell, is to initiate a cascade of uh, what we call phosphorylation or, or essentially metabolic switches that results in the translocation of what are called glucose transport vesicles from the cytosol or the interior of the cell up to the cell membrane where it opens these portals or these channels or these little doorways uh, for glucose to come into the cell where we can 
use that as a fuel source. And so insulin resistance basically says that that, that internal switching mechanism from where the insulin receptor gets stimulated to the translocation of the glucose transport vesicles and the internalization of glucose, that process doesn't work efficiently. And what that means is that you can have a small degree of insulin resistance, or you can have a very large degree. And the more insulin resistant you are, the more insulin it takes to control a given amount of blood sugar. That would be analogous to having that rusty lock, having the right key that fits the lock. And if it's just a little bit rusty and a little bit stuck, you can you know give it a little bit of force and you can turn it and unlock it. But the more rusty and the more stuck that lock is, the more force it takes to open the lock to open the door or a window or whatever the case is. And I think the analogy holds very well when we start talking about insulin signaling mechanics and what happens at the cellular level. And so when we start looking at, and this is really where it starts to get practical, and this is a point that I think is missed, um, certainly just in the general healthcare consumer population, but I hate to say it, even even among clinicians who are trained in alternative, integrative, or functional medicine, uh, and, and I think it's very poorly understood in conventional medicine, is that let's say we have two people, doesn't matter gender, age, body composition, doesn't really matter. Let's say they both have a fasting glucose of 95, let's call it 90. And pretty much everyone's gonna be happy with that. Whether you're talking about conventional lab ranges where fasting glucose is typically 65, to 99, Dr. Noseworthy, or even in the functional range, some people argue about the upper upper limit, but generally there's kind of agreement that 65 to 99 is okay. What's missing from that discussion, for any given level of fasting glucose, what's missing is the question: How much insulin does it take to create? So if I have two people that have the same fasting blood sugar of 90, let's use 95. I'm going back. Let's say we have two people with a fasting blood sugar of 95, and one person has a fasting insulin of 10, and the other person has a fasting insulin of 20, the second person requires more insulin to create that fasting blood sugar of 95, and that person therefore is more insulin resistant and less insulin sensitive than the first person. And you will feel to say it another way, you know how to address for any given level of fasting situation. blood sugar, you can check it out at my website. The higher the insulin level, the higher the insulin resistance. And so, ideally, what we want to do is we we want to look not just at fasting insulin by itself or fasting glucose by itself. We want to look at them as paired values. So, ideally, you would have a single blood draw after a 12 to 14 hour fast. You'd measure fasting glucose and fasting insulin at the same time in the same blood sample, and then we can look at these paired values. And in fact, in, in the medical literature, there's this great uh, research tool that they use. It's, it's actually a mathematical calculation called the HOMA score, H-O-M-A. It stands for Homeostatic Model of Assessment. I've been using this in my own practice clinically for you know probably about 12 years or so. But really, you can't pick up a research article about insulin resistance, metabolic syndrome, prediabetes or type 2 diabetes, without there being some discussion of the HOMA score or the HOMA calculation of the people that are participating in the study. And so, you know, a decade or so when I came across this, I thought, well, 
if this is being used in research circles and it's a simple math equation, why don't I start looking at this with my own client population? And uh, it was really quite eye-opening for reasons that we'll probably talk about in a different video or a different podcast. Um, but nevertheless, when you start looking at blood sugar control as a multi-dimensional problem, or a multi-dimensional function is probably a better way to say it, then you can you get to the point where you're not really fooled by a disguised problem. Again, you can have somebody, regardless of age, gender, body composition, body fat, lean muscle mass, and they can show up with a normal blood sugar control or of fasting glucose value. But if it takes an awful lot of insulin to make that happen, that's a problem. And eventually that problem is going to manifest in other ways in overt signs and symptoms of high blood sugar, high insulin, and then marching down that progression from insulin resistance to metabolic syndrome and prediabetes. You know, I can say it a different way again, is that if I have somebody who has a normal, even an optimal fasting blood sugar of say 90, but they have an elevated insulin to make that happen, that person is in a state of insulin resistance, and then we can gauge exactly how um, how bad that is by using the HOMA calculator and looking at their HOMA score. Um, and we can educate that person and say, hey, you might not be necessarily manifesting the full-blown problem, but if whatever diet and lifestyle issues are driving this particular metabolic issue of high blood sugar, high insulin, and insulin resistance, if they're not altered for the better, then the natural progression is to go from where you are to full-blown pre-diabetes and possibly even type 2 diabetes. At what point do you want to decide to fix that? That kind of problem is always better prevented than it is resolved or fixed or reversed, however you want to say that. And again, un unfortunately, this is not something that's well understood in clinical practice. And I'm going to say across the spectrum of both conventional as well as alternative practitioners. We're still, as a group, kind of stuck on this. Well, if your fasting blood sugar is in the normal range, and if your hemoglobin A1C is in the normal range, then everything is well and good. And I'm telling you it's not. That for any given amount of glucose, that takes a higher amount of insulin to make that happen, the more insulin resistance you have. So let me talk very quickly about the HOMA calculator. Um, it's a mathematical equation. It's actually on its second iteration right now. So the, the equation was modified, but it, uh, it was originated by some researchers out of Oxford University back in the 1970s. I'm tempted to say 1976, but I might be off by that. And uh, if you're a clinician and you happen to be listening to this podcast, go to oxford.edu and just type in in the search field HOMA, H-O-M-A, or just go to Google and, and uh, put in HOMA calculator Oxford, and it will bring you to the download page where you can actually download this little app that you can put on a Mac or on a PC. They don't have it for smartphones or tablets, I don't believe, but certainly desktops. And uh, you can start looking at these paired values. Now, if you're a, a healthcare consumer, you're somebody, someone with um, health issues and you're concerned about your blood sugar control, don't be satisfied with a normal fasting glucose and A1C, even though those are encouraging. You want to go to the next level of analysis and ask yourself, how much insulin do I need to make these numbers happen? Now, obviously, if your blood sugar, your fasting blood sugar is high, your hemoglobin A1C is high, we can theorize that your fasting insulin will be elevated as well. But it's nice to have a data point. 
And in the circumstance where you have these kind of hidden clinical problems that are just beginning to brew in the early stages, just simply asking your doctor to measure fasting glucose and insulin at the same time, and then whether they do it or you do it, uh, running the HOMA calculation, if you look at your fasting insulin, let me give you some guidelines again. In fact, let me back up and give you guidelines in terms of labs. For me, um, even though functionally most docs are okay with fasting glucose in the 90s, I don't really like to see it over 90 or 92. A lot of that has to do with individuality. Some people are great at 95 as long as everything else is working well. Others are kind of falling apart. So you have to back up and see the bigger picture. But I, I typically like to see my fasting blood sugars um, between 80 to 90, 92, as long as they're functioning and they're not showing signs and symptoms of either low blood sugar or high blood sugar. I like to see my A1C at you know below five, ideally, my hemoglobin A1C. And I like to see the, the fasting insulin at least in the single digits and preferably down around four or five. And so it's pretty easy to get these labs done, even if you have to pay cash for it, that's relatively inexpensive to get these studies done. And you can run your own analysis and you can just take a look at your own factors. And if you want to actually assess your insulin sensitivity or resistance, you can use the HOMA calculator. And it will actually give you three different numerical results. Um, really the one that you should pay attention to is the what they call percent S, which stands for the percent sensitivity. 100 is normal. Anything below 100 reflects a loss of sensitivity or an increase in insulin resistance. For example, if I put in paired values of glucose and insulin and run the calculation for the HOMA calculator and I get a percent S or percent sensitivity of 90, that means I have lost 10% of the normal expected insulin sensitivity. Or to say it another way, I am 90% sensitive and 10% insensitive or resistant. 100 is normal. If I run another paired values of glucose and fa fasting glucose and insulin, and I have somebody who had, well, actually, let me tell you, I had a client, I ran these numbers today, and they have a fasting glucose of 95, but they have a fasting insulin of 24, which is right at the upper limit. Some labs will call that lab high, but it's at the upper limit of normal of a bunch of labs. And when you run the HOMA calculator on that, the percent S is like 33% which means that this particular person has lost 67% of the normal sensitivity, yet their fasting glucose is totally normal and acceptable in almost all ways that you would consider that normal number to be normal. In fact, their hemoglobin A1C is 5.4, which is below what we technically call insulin resistant at 5.6. But this is, the, this is the type of person that would get missed, in, in certainly in the conventional settings, and I hate to say it in a lot of alternative and functional medicine practices because practitioners often don't understand the physiology, they don't understand what the numbers are telling them, and they just don't go that extra step to get that extra layer of detail and information that will really kind of open your eyes as to physiologically what's happening and ultimately what you can do in terms of diet, lifestyle, or supplementation if needed to try to change that. All right, so let me let me stop it there just a little bit more. Depending, I don't know, I might have a couple more ideas on what I want to say about insulin. So there might be another another aspect to this. Um, I'll have to do some thinking between now and when I record the next podcast. But uh, it'll either be another 
little discussion on insulin levels or blood sugar control. And um, if not, we'll move on to the next hormone in our list. All right, thanks for listening. Thank you so much for listening to the Inflammation Nation. If you found this episode valuable, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. Be the first to know when a new episode drops so that you can stay on top of your game. It also helps others like you find the answers they need. And why not head over to my main website, drnoseworthy.com, that's drnoseworthy.com, to explore my personalized functional medicine coaching programs, submit a question to the podcast, maybe take a quiz, or even reach out to me using the contact form that you can find there. We'll see you next time.